So Skylar asked me to come up and uh, kind of read the questions tonight, and I, I don't know how you want to do this if I just pick one of you to, to answer the, the questions, or we're just going to kind of go through the group. Defer everything to Doug. <laughs> well, he has been on vacation, so he's well-rested, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, Larry, would you like to pray before we get started? yes. Father, we do uh, thank you for your unending love and for the joy that we have because we're your children. Thank you for our, this body and the fellowship we have together. We know that that stems from our love for you and your love for us, helping us to love each other. So, Lord, give us guidance tonight. Give us uh, insight into your word. Help us to uh, respond and answer questions with your word, not our ideas. Lord, please be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Thanks, Larry. So it looks like tonight we have um, four questions we'll try to get through, and we'll just kind of start right off the bat and start uh, with uh, Skylar down there on, there on the end uh, to start with. So first question, what are some specific ways that God disciplines his children? How do I know if I'm being disciplined by him or just going through a hard time? So what are some specific ways that God disciplines his children? Yeah, that that's a difficult, and as we have talked about these questions, that's the one that I've shared the most about, I think, with the four of us, or the one I'm most confused by and excited about. Um, because it's such a practical-oriented question, trying to live out the faith, what, what does it mean to, to apply Scripture, and, and how do I discern that in regards to discipline? So the text we consider there is Hebrews chapter 12, where the Lord talks about discipline, he, disciplining His children, and these guys really need to get on, on this discussion as well because we've had some good ones in the past. But discerning whether you're just going through a hard time or an actual disciplining moment from the Lord I think is difficult for me. Um, so as I was thinking through the question, I thought, well, what's the goal of discipline? And if it yields these results, perhaps it could be classified as discipline. So I guess the, um, the, the goal of discipline from the Lord is repentance and correction. So if there's a known sin in life that you haven't repented of or you're um, indulging in, uh, probably a safe bet that every form of difficulty could be a form of discipline in one regard. Um, if you're an, uh, unaware of a sin, um, it might just be part of living in a fallen world. That's a very simple look at, at a practical question. Um, what was the second part of that? The specific ways. That was the first part. You know, I don't know. There's there's times in Scripture where people were killed. I mean, that's like the ultimate form of discipline, if that counts as discipline. Um, there are other times when people are sick. We've talked about it may be as simple as conviction. I mean, if, if, if conviction works, um, there's no need to go further. Try to think of it in the sense of God as a father disciplining a child how we dis imperfectly discipline our children. You know, if they stop at a warning, there's no need for a, a SWAT. 
Sometimes they ignore the warning so many times there is a need for a SWAT. And, and perhaps the discipline of the Lord increases over time to whatever point is necessary for us to come to a place of brokenness, repentance, and correction. I mean, you guys jump in on this. I'm just going to talk in here. Because yeah, we've had of, good discussions about it. Uh, I was thinking anything that God does to bring us to where He wants us to be, and it may be correcting a sin for sure, but also I, I think some discipline helps us to grow in maturity. may not be because we're doing something really, really bad. Um, well, then what's the point of discipline? To grow us into where Christ wants us to be. We, did, we discipline ourselves to grow closer to God. We discipline ourselves to get better at a certain oh, you're task. Th- you're thinking like spiritual disciplines. Yeah, I mean, sometimes discipline, yes, is definitely punishment because we've not done something right or we're doing something wrong. But I think also anything that moves us to where God wants us to be is Him disciplining us. You don't like that? I just took it differently. I, I think that's a, there's at least that possibility. I think there's two – There's uh, and what makes me think that, Hebrews 12 that Skylar alluded to starts with – let me just read part of it. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he begins in Romans 13, 7 with a reference to Christ. And from that, he works into our discipline. Christ never needed any corrective discipline, and yet – that's where he starts with the example, and then he goes on to say, you guys have also endured hard times. And then he moves from that to say, our loving Heavenly Father disciplines us. So I, we tend to think of discipline as corrective. I have sinned, and God had to get my attention. And I totally agree with Skylar. It could be something as light as conviction and loss of joy and sorrow over our sin. That's a, that's a form of discipline that's more internal, and hopefully that's what gets our attention and then it moves on to other things. Um, so I think it could be either. The, the amazing thing to me is regardless of which it is, if it's just difficult times in life, the end goal of difficult times, according to James, is growing our faith. The end goal of God having to correctively discipline us is to grow our faith. So if I'm going through a hard time and I can't sort out, is this just because I live in a fallen world, or is this God actually trying to get my attention and correct me? If I can't figure it out for sure, the end goal is actually the same in either one, to get me to grow in my faith and walk closer to God. So even if I can't sort it out perfectly, the, the last step in the process is the same. But I also think there's the question asked, how do I know? Uh, I think if we have a seeking heart, we're trying to walk with God imperfectly, and all of us don't, we can't do it perfectly. Uh, even as imperfect parents, when we had to discipline our kids, we did not leave it vague. We, we didn't say, hey, you're grounded to a teenage child, and you have to stay, you can't go out next weekend, and not tell them why. Even as imperfect parents, we made sure they knew that we were trying to get their attention and stop a certain behavior. Even with a young child, if you swat their hand because they're not supposed to touch something, you make sure you know, your child knows why you're disciplining them. God being a perfectly heavenly father, I don't think he disciplines us if it's corrective and, and punitive even, where he's getting our attention and leaves it totally vague. I, I think if we want to know, we're like, God, I think he can be clear as the perfect heavenly father to say, this difficulty I brought into your life as a response to 
your sin, your unrepentant sin. Um, so I, I think if we're searching and wanting to know, he doesn't hide that from us. I think he wants us to know why he's getting our attention, what kind of Heavenly Father would discipline us and never tell us why. So I think he wants us to know, and I think if we're trying to walk with him, we would know he, he is able to bring to our heart an unrepentant sin, an attitude that was wrong, a behavior that was sin as he corrects us. But the end goal would be the same, even if it's just trials and difficulty that grow our faith or actually Heavenly Father disciplining our sin, it's to grow our faith. Either one of them, the roads merge back together, I think, and, and are the same thing. I was also, just to add to that, I'm thinking if you're looking at a hardship, you can ask your question, is this hardship drawing me closer to God? And I think if it is, it very well may be God disciplining you. Uh, sometimes discipline is easier to see as we look back and we've gone through a hard time in our life and but we see that we've grown tremendously because of how he's brought us through now we can help others grow through that same experience and the whole whole point of hebrews 12 that's difficult to swallow i, I think it is a text talking about corrective discipline in the sense of sin the whole point of it though that's difficult to apply is that this discipline is a good thing. Uh, the Lord disciplines the one He loves, uh, chastises every son whom He receives. Uh, it's part of being ha possessing sonship or daughtership of God to, to endure that discipline. And ultimately, again, like you guys have said, all for the sake of growing in Christ-likeness and godliness. And so, um, you know, being quicker to respond to sin and repentance might mean less severe discipline, but nonetheless, the bottom line is godliness in the end. I think it's an I think it's the best question we got personally for myself. It intrigued me the most because it's so practical. It's a it's a biblical truth trying to be lived out and fleshed out and discerned, and I, I made me excited. So that it's going downhill from this point for me. And it's a good question too because you can. You can tell the answer is important because you don't want to be in a place where God's sending down discipline and you not realizing it. If, yeah. that's, if that's what that question's flowing from. And I get that because I want to know the difference between a hardship and discipline because I don't want to bring displeasure to the Father. And I think, I was thinking back through all the examples in the Bible, and I, I do think that God does want us to know, I mean... God told Moses, you, you are not able to enter the promised land, and it's because you, sh you showed the Israelites as if I wasn't holy, you know. And he told, he let David know, I mean, this plague is because you, you took a census of the troops. And it's, so I think God does want us to know. I think it looks a little bit different now, now that we have the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit's the one that brings the conviction of sin. So just like God wanted them in the Old Testament to know that they were being disciplined, the Holy Spirit wants us to know. And so I think the biggest question is just, is this hardship or this trial accompanied with a conviction for a particular sin? And if it is, there's a very good chance that you are being disciplined. And if there's not, and if you're looking in your heart and you're saying, man, I don't feel a conviction over anything particular, it could just be a James 1 type situation. What would you guys say to someone who 
is enduring a tragedy in their life, maybe health or the loss of a loved one, and they're living under the guilt that it might be God's discipline on them, that this, this tragedy might have happened because I've sinned somewhere. I mean, that's not an uncommon thought. But what's your counsel to that? I, I, w- I would think there are times that, um, and for me, it's all alone. I mean, I, I just think you have to get on your knees before the Lord and, and, and lay it all out there. And every, every sin that comes to your mind, you're, you're confessing it and asking for forgiveness and apologizing and repenting of it. Um, because if it is that, if it is discipline, that's the appropriate response. And if it's not discipline, that's still something we should be doing in our lives is staying current on our confessing our sins and, and trying to walk with God and keeping our lives clean. Uh, and I, I, my counsel to them would be it, it probably is time to, to get alone with the Lord, maybe for an extended period of time um, in his word and on your knees and praying and laying it out there and just saying, God, if it is, you can speak clearly and your servant's trying to listen. Um, so point that out to me, and as any sins come to my heart and mind, I'm confessing them to you today, and I'm laying them out there. Um, so I, I, would, I would think you're trusting God that he's good enough at communicating to you what the sin is, that, that you're spending time in his word and apologizing for those and confessing them as they, as they come to mind. That would be my counsel to them. Um, and maybe even do that with a brother or sister in Christ that you trust well enough to say, would you join me in one of those kind of sacred prayer times where I'm I'm begging God to make this clear to me, and, and in my heart I want to repent of any of those that come to mind and, and not put them off. Um, because I, I do think it's a very practical question. Uh, um, I remember reading in high school um, a, a little booklet called Others May, You Cannot, and it was written by a man who just pointed out the fact, it's, it's a great little booklet if you can find it, um, that when you reach a place in life where you realize you're being convicted about things that other people that you know and maybe even respect or even in your church have no problem with. And others may do those things, but you cannot because of God's conviction in your life. Uh, That's not necessarily a time to judge them. It's a time to be grateful for God that he's brought you to a place that he's convicted you of those things that other people seem to have no problem doing and you believe they're sin and, and you can't do them, the Holy Spirit. So that's a form of discipline in your life um, where, where God has, in a sense, in the field of your life, he's removed the bigger stones, um, and now he's moved on to medium-sized stones and smaller stones, and he's removing those from your life, those sins that other people, they're not even on other people's radar yet, but he's so convicted you about them that you can't, you can't do them anymore. That, that's just a sign that God's disciplined you and continued moving in your life in those areas. Um, so I, I, I just I think when we, when we wonder if God's disciplining us, it's a time to stay very current on our confession of sin. Yeah, I, I, I've noticed that in my life. I've got some small things that I think are wrong for me to do, but I would never say they're wrong for someone else. And even though that may be a small stone, I still may have big stones that I have yet to turn over and try to deal with. On the other side of this um, question, I thought of an individual that is connected to our church and her family's going through a hardship. You were there. And she kept saying, God must be mad at me for my child to be enduring this. And at that point in time, we were just telling her, that's not in 
in connection with the character of God that's part of just being in a fallen world. So even in examining, I think, the discipline versus hardships, you just look at what do I know about the character of God and does this discipline match his character? Is this something he would employ as a tool for discipline or is this just part of um, life? Life, You know, God, God's not going to just deal out vengeance on his own children in the sense that she was thinking um, without first many other things. And so, the, I don't know, maybe just spook for thought there, that the discipline of God will always connect with the character of God. Um, and it's done from a loving father's heart, not, not a punisher. Well, not, not a, he's not the enemy. No. So. Brian brought up an interesting point in the Old Testament discipline of God, and this is a sobering thought, that one person's sin, when God does discipline it, it can affect the people around you. I mean, the Old Testament Israelites were, were affected by God's discipline of their leader, and they felt it, even though they maybe weren't the ones who made the decision to sin. And God's discipline in our lives can affect the people around us as well. Um, a sin in Trinity Baptist Church, unrepentant, hard-hearted, can affect the rest of the fellowship. Um, it does affect the rest of the fellowship, but if God chooses to discipline, I mean, in 1 Corinthians, God's discipline was actually taking some people's lives and making them sick because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. That had to affect the rest of the church. I mean, you, you, you can't love other brothers and sisters and see them sick and dying and not be affected by that. So it spills over. It's not like I'll just sin and God will discipline me, but I don't have to worry about affecting any of my brothers and sisters in Christ or my family. Or it, The pattern in the New Testament is it does affect people close to you sometimes. All right, very good. So moving on to the next question. We'll start with you, Larry, but all of you can jump in. <laughs> My favorite question of all four of these, so all right. ask me first. <laughs> so the second question is, can someone be a Christian and live an entire life with unrepentant sin? Example, homosexuality or other some other type of sin, and still obtain salvation? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 say, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then verse 11 corrects us because it says, For such were you, but. Uh, and such were you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So someone continually living in a, a unrepentant sin would not, according to this scripture, would not be a Christian. They will not go to heaven. And I think that's because the Holy Spirit is not in their heart convicting them to bring them back. When a Christian gets into one of these sins, the Holy Spirit convicts, you repent, and you get back right with God. Or He disciplines you. Yeah, I think it's important to note that all of us are going to die still with people with sin in their lives. None of us are going to reach perfection while we're still on this earth. Um, but what we're talking about is unrepentant sin. And so 
I don't think that I'm kind of like I'm with Larry. I don't think that a Christian will just boldly in the face of God say, I know this is wrong. I don't care for the rest of their Christian life. I think the Holy Spirit and God through discipline, which we just got done talking about, will bring them to a place where they're so miserable they want to get back into God's good graces and and repent. And none of us repent perfectly, but what we're talking about here is the heart, the heart issue, I think, of having a heart that doesn't want to repent, doesn't care. And I think of what First John says when it says, no one who is in Christ will continue on sinning. No one, and so uh, we still struggle, but we do repent. And I think that the Holy Spirit will bring us to that point. The only thing that I could think of would maybe be if, if you've been a believer for a really long time, um, but you've, you've hardened your heart towards a smaller sin to the point where you're just blind. And uh, it may be possible that you could go through life not boldly in the face of God um, saying you don't want to repent, but just blind to the fact that maybe that is a sin. And you remain a baby, a baby Christian throughout your life. I, I know we're all saved by grace and that none of us deserve it. So I have to be very careful to not think ill of someone who is in a sin that I would never do uh, because I've done other sins that possibly they would never do. So God gave us grace and that's the only way we can be saved. And when we get it, we should give it to others. Uh, a friend of mine told me that once. You were given great grace. You should share it with other people. I, I think um, I think Larry ran immediately to the most important passage on this one. Um, the First Corinthians six passage uh, is is immediately what comes to my mind. Um, so <clears throat> that's what some of you were, but then you were washed, and and I think I think Brian is right on as well. I, I think the difference every command in the New Testament presupposes the fact that you can be a Christian and break that command. Otherwise, the Bible wouldn't have to command you not to do it. So there's no command in the New Testament for Christians to receive the Holy Spirit because you can't be a Christian and not receive the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't have to command you to receive the Holy Spirit. That's automatic. There's no command in the Bible for Christians to go to heaven when you die because that's automatic. So the commands in the Bible in the New Testament for Christians, like don't lie, presupposes the fact that you can be a Christian and commit that sin, so the Bible has to command you not to do it. So any of us are capable of any sin. Peter, who I believe was already a believer, denied even knowing Christ. I think the difference you have to recognize is that was not the pattern of his life. The question, I think, and I think it's a great question that that Tim just read, is if that's the habit of your life, that's the pattern of your life. If I can go 30 years and every time I'm asked about Christ, I deny that he's my Savior, I deny knowing him, I do what Peter did the night before Christ died. If that's the pattern of my life, I'm probably not a Christian. But could I commit that sin one time? Well, Peter did. Um, any of us are capable of committing a sin. I think the question is, that is that the trajectory of your life? The other passage that comes to mind, I'll just read it out of First John chapter 3, sums it up well. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The interesting thing in the First John 3 passage to me is that John argues it's pretty evident who the children of God are and who are not. We sometimes want to say of people we love, but there's not a lot of fruit in their life that they're a Christian, yeah, we, we can't really tell. I think they're a Christian, but I can't really tell. John would probably disagree with you. I and mean, he does disagree with you in chapter 3. He actually argues that it's pretty evident. It's not as hard as we might think it is to tell who really genuine believers are and who are not. He argues in chapter 3, it's not that hard of a call. It's pretty evident who the children of God are and who aren't. I'll say again, any of us can have that moment like Peter in in the courtyard outside with Christ about to be put on trial to deny him. But the general pattern, the road we're generally on, although we all sin, gives evidence of the fact that we have been changed by Christ. So can someone say, I I love Christ, I've embraced Christ, but as the example, um, but I embrace my homosexual lifestyle and I intend to do that for the next 50 years, uh, but I think I'm a believer. First John 3 would say, no, you're not, you're not if the pattern of my life is to lie every day for the next 30 years and I don't ever plan on quitting being a liar, I'm probably not a Christian. That's John would say. It's evident. He begins to make a change in your life. There's a decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing amount of holiness all because of God. And so I I think the question is, no, you're not a believer. Yeah, I I thought Brian made a good distinction too of between sins of omission and sins of commission. Kind of how, how we break them apart. Sins sins that you're not really aware that you're committing um, versus sins that you defiantly do commit. If we go with the example of the question homosexuality, that, that's a pretty clear-cut issue in Scripture. That's a would have to be a bold, defiant. Uh, in fact, we've had a friend that said this before. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do it anyways kind of a deal. Um, yeah, John says that that's not possible. I, I also thought of a First John Scripture. First um, John chapter one, verse five and six. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Um, this stresses the importance of continual repentance in the Christian life. Um, to always be in a place of humility before God, constantly uh, repenting and confessing. Um, because yet, I've, you know, John's just so clear about the issue. You can't um, keep indulging in your sin and love it, and and claim to be walking and knowing with God. the The reality of struggling against sin is so important. If the struggle's not there, neither is the Holy Spirit. I think that one's a good one too, because. Um, just the the times and the culture we live in. I mean, not necessarily just with homosexuality, but with the false gospels that are out there and the um, just, you know, as you interact with people on a daily basis, thinking they have some form of godliness or, or righteousness and and the way they live their lives. And, and I, I do want to add, Tim, before you go on, can that person still obtain salvation at the end of that question? Of course, if they come to a place of repentance. If the first part of that question is going to be true through death, then there is no salvation. But if a person's lived an unrepentant life, 
and the last year, few years of their life, they've come to the place of repentance and confession, then yeah, salvation is theirs for the taking. We have a gracious God who does forgive us all at any any time for very great sins. Psalm 25, David cries out, pardon my guilt for it is great. That's all of us. And so um, if this individual comes to the end of the life repentant and trusting in Christ, salvation is theirs to obtain. If they enter into, into death without it, uh, without turning to Christ, renouncing sin, and John says, yeah, they, they didn't have a heart transformed. And, I, and I'll say this again just because I, I think it's important. It keeps us from being judgmental. One significant chapter of sin in a person's life does not automatically get, give evidence that they're not a Christian. It's the unrepentant embrace of that sin, and as Brian said, unrepentant long-term. That's the pattern. That's what you see in my life. Um, momentarily, any of us can bear bad fruit because um, we're still fighting sin, as Skylar said. So the, the, a, a, a daily weakness does not give evidence that a person is not a Christian. It's, um, I mean, and, and there's even examples of that in the Bible. I mean, Paul even writes that Barnabas was led astray into some things he shouldn't have been involved in for a while till he was corrected. And it, it's, it's just that if, if that's the embrace and that's your attitude and you're not fighting it, that gives evidence that somebody as powerful as Christ has not come into your life. All right. The next question um, comes out of Romans 3.11. So in Romans 3.11, Paul says, no one seeks after God. But in Matthew 7.7, 7, people are told, seek and you will find. Why does God command and encourage us to seek him when Romans says no one seeks after him? Does really no one seek after him? What about those searching in the wrong places like false religion? And this one's for you to start with, Doug. <laughs> um, well, Romans 3, uh, let me just read... Um, what it says, so we're, Paul is making the argument in Romans 3, he's getting the whole world guilty before God. He's building in Romans 3 to Romans 3.23 for all have sinned. So he's building, he's building a building brick by brick to where he can get the whole world, Gentile, Jew, young, old, rich, poor, doesn't matter, everybody's guilty before God. And he's making an incredible theological argument to get there. And in building toward Romans 3.23, he says in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and here comes verse 11 where the question comes, and you may not know this, but these next few verses are all Old Testament quotes, primarily from the book of Psalms. So it's interesting, um, Paul the theologian runs to the Old Testament to make his point. And he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Um, so that's actually a quote from, in all likelihood, Psalm 14. You, you may not know this as many times as I've read through Psalms. I didn't realize this till just this year when I was reading through Psalms. Psalms 14 and Psalms 53 are almost identical. I mean, like 90% of those two Psalms are word for word exactly the same. 
So if you want to say, if you want to memorize two chapters this week, just memorize Psalm 14 and you've also memorized Psalm 53 because they're, they're identical chapters except uh, one verse toward the end. And so he's quoting either Psalm 53 or Psalm 14, which says these things, no one seeks after God, no one does good, no one. And as he makes that point, he's, he's building toward all have sinned. So the question is, what did it mean in Psalms? Because whatever it meant in Psalms is what it means in Romans. And here, here's, what, here's my take on that, and then we can discuss what it, what it means when Jesus tells people to seek. I don't think Paul's saying when he says no one does good that it's impossible for a lost person to ever do even a single good thing. Because all of us have known a lost person who, who did something good. I mean, our own observations would say, while that is a true statement, it doesn't mean, I mean, if you've known a lost neighbor who, when their neighbor was in the hospital, came over and mowed their yard for him for free, they did something good. That's a lost person who did something good out of the goodness of their heart. So it's, it's not an absolute statement in the sense that um, a lost man could never pull over and help somebody change a flat tire. That's a, that's a kind act to your neighbor. That's doing something good. Yet Paul says here, no one does good, not even one. So what's he mean by that? I think when you take it in the context of Romans 3, where he's building toward everybody's a sinner, he's saying, according to God's standards, no one's good enough. According to God's standards, no one, verse 10, verse 11, no one understands. No one understands God or the things of God the way they should. No one, according to God's standards, seeks after God the way they should. No lost person is out there in a way that God accepts, seeking after God, doing good in the way that God accepts, and understanding all the things of God the way God expects them to. According to man's standards, there are people that do good. There are people that have some limited understanding, and there are people, according to man's standards, that do seek for something higher, better, and they may look for it in other religions as the questions ask. There's a hole in my heart, and I'm not getting it filled anywhere else. I'm going to dabble with religion. So they're, in a sense, a seeker a little bit. Like, what? there's got to be more. I wonder what happens after we die. And there's people, according to man's standards, that do good. According to God's standards, what he demands, no one seeks after him the way he wants us to. Not even Doug, as a saved Christian, seeks after God the way God expects me to, where he sets the bar. I don't understand the way he wants me to. I don't do good the way he wants me to. Nobody can do that on their own. So where God sets the standard, there's nobody that's an adequate seeker or understands or does good. Because of that, he can say everybody then falls short of the glory of God. So are there people out there who are curious and may seek um, something spiritual? Yes. Do they do it in a way that's acceptable to God? Nobody. Not even one. But God does command us to seek him. We are still to, to seek and to, to but, and I do think Jesus in telling people to seek and knock and the door will be open, he's talking to people, many of them around him who have already put their faith in him and he's saying as Christians, you need to, to keep seeking. So to say nobody seeks and yet he commands us to seek, I, I believe both of those truths totally in their context. But you guys jump in with what, how you see Romans 3 as well. Yeah, God, God's heart is, is obviously a heart that desires people to seek after him. And it goes farther than just Matthew 7. I looked up some other verses. In Proverbs eight seventeen. it says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. And even in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is evangelizing, he says, 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God's desire for people to seek him is without question. But our nature has been so corrupted by sin. I mean, later in Romans, Paul gets to talking about how sin entered through one man and with sin, death. And in Ephesians, it talks about how we were dead in our sins and iniquities. And so God's heart is for us to seek after him. We're commanded to seek after him. But sin is so powerful in our lives that it, it kills any ability that we might have had to seek after him. And so that's why Christ made statements like, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, or all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And, and so it, it is this battle with God wanting us to seek after him, our inability to do it. And so God steps in and he says, all right, if, if I want you to seek me but you can't, I'll come after you. Yeah, so I lovingly do take Romans 3 literal, that no one does good and no one seeks. Um, because I, I think the motivation in that moment is skewed. Uh, whether it be I, I'm doing a good work to get the approval or the praise or make myself feel better. Uh, without Christ, um, we don't do, like, and you said that, we don't do the good that God wants us to do. We're unable to. The heart's deceitfully wicked and and untrustworthy and all of those things. So I think God's, like you said, God's standard of goodness, nobody achieves it, nobody does it without first being regenerated. And I think nobody nobody does seek for, for God. Um, nobody pursues God, but God pursues us. Matthew 7, as it ties to this, he is first and foremost to the disciples as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples are the real main audience, so he's telling them, first and foremost, um, seek me. But I think Matthew 7, 7 is proof that Romans 3, 11 is true. If we were good at seeking God, Christ wouldn't need to instruct us to seek Him. I think those other texts that Brian uh, shared were also would also fit into that thought, the Proverbs and, and Acts, just reminding us that God does want people to seek Him. And if we were good at seeking Him, we wouldn't need so many reminders. So the, the plethora of reminders and commands to do that, for me, proves Romans 3.11 true that no one does it. So God is constantly putting it before us. And like, like Doug said, um, even as Christians, we're needing those constant reminders, right? Distractions get in the way and self-help gets in the way. And we need to be reminded that we're dependent creatures who do need to seek God. I found the question tricky as it pertains to false religions because um, there's a form of seeking, um, but it's not, an, it's not a right form, it's not an adequate form. Um, you know, so if there was ever a hole in my thought, it would come from that. Uh, however, I thought of several things. Um, God does save people out of false religions, thankfully. I thought that most false religions, in fact, I think all of them are selfish in nature. Christianity is the only one that says, humble yourself and deny yourself, and there you'll find life in Christ. Everyone else is talking about being better to attain what you want, whether it be nirvana or peace 
or your own form of paradise or heaven. Those are, in my estimation, a a simplistic definition of all other religions. Um, But I, I think it's more so geared towards what can make me better, what can fill the hole in my heart, instead of what do I owe to a holy God, which I think is the place of Christianity. I owe repentance. I owe obedience. I owe devotion. And out of that comes blessing upon blessing. Um, so, so I come at it a little differently. But, but as the question pertains, I guess I'll just say this. I think Matthew 7-7 7, 7 proves the point of Romans 3-11. I'll just, that, that's my simple answer. And I, I would say, when I say we, we see people doing a little bit of this according to our standard, but it falls way short of God's, um, I, I, I would say I'd, I, I take it literally too in this sense. And this is the analogy I've used forever, um, especially with students. I, I don't think anybody makes a move toward God first. And, and if you set it up as like a, a chess game and we're on one side and God's on the other, God has to move a piece toward us. He has to move toward us before we would ever move toward him, which is Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Um, so even the people that are seeking, uh, in a sense, wondering if there's more, it's because God moved first. And, and I even think in the early chapters before Romans 3 and Romans 1 and 2, he makes that point. The two big, right. yeah. the, the, the two big pieces God moved is creation, yeah. so it's out there declaring the glory of God. So God moved first and said, I'm going to let you see my works, which makes people go, there must be something more. So even the people that I would say are curious are only curious because God moved the chess piece first and, and put creation on display. And the other one he makes in Romans 1 and 2 is that he gave us a conscience. Even lost people have a conscience, and, and the law of God's written on their hearts. And so internally there's a witness. Externally there's a witness creation, both saying, I'm here, I'm real, you owe me worship, you owe me devotion, and that's the only thing that would prompt anybody to think beyond themselves. So God moves a chess piece first, and so if anybody seeks, it's because God moved first. And for Paul, you couldn't get to Romans 3 without those two things in Romans 1 and 2. It's that important. I do think, though, for most people, um, God will even take another first move, so to speak, a second move, to open their eyes to see creation as it's intended to be seen, and Revive the conscience to have the effect it's supposed to have, but yeah, that, I'm glad you pointed those out because you can't get to where Paul wants to get without first saying there is a conscience, there is a creation. Man, Romans one is without excuse. Yeah, so I, I think any any time we see what we think are people doing these things from a human perspective, it's a response to to God's to God's move as well. Um, I'll just throw this out because I think it's interesting. After he quotes those out of Psalms, um, just so you notice, as he describes what lost people are like in Romans 3, he actually uses our body to describe it. I'll just read these. In describing lost people that don't seek him and don't do good and don't understand, listen to all the body parts he mentions. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he describes their eyes, their feet, their throat, their mouth. He goes through a lot of the ways we sin with our bodies and says, you know what? Even the way they live their lives 
declare they don't know God and they're not seeking him and they do it with their feet and their eyes and their hands and their mouth and their throat. It's just, it's quite an illustration of, of what a lost person looks like and what we look like before we experience grace. I got nothing. You got nothing. <laughs> I had a whole lot, but they took it all. <laughs> All right. So the next one comes out of Romans 3 as well. Um, so it's coming from Romans three twenty-five through 26. And the question is, God left sin unpunished. What about the Old Testament? That's for you to start, Brian. All right. Okay, well, we have to look at it in the context because the context of this verse is completely the key to understanding it. So in Romans 3, if we start up in... Verse um, 25, um, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the question becomes, what does it mean that he passed over former sins? And what it does not mean is that he didn't punish former sins or that he ignored former sins. When it's saying he passed over, I think what he's saying is every single believer um, in God in the Old Testament um, didn't have their sins punished while they were still alive. He passed over their sins. They were given grace. Abraham entered into heaven with a grace that hadn't been purchased yet with Christ's blood. Moses entered into heaven with a grace that hadn't been earned through Christ's blood. So in a real sense, God passed over the former sins of believers, but eventually punished Christ, which is his whole point in Romans chapter 3, that he did punish Christ. Christ was the satisfaction for our sins. So that, and that's the key, the key is in verse 26, so that he would be both just and the justifier. In the Old Testament, God was the justifier. He justified Abraham by grace. He justified Moses by grace. And in killing Christ on the cross, he proved that he wasn't justifier, but that he was also just. Christ's death was just, and it it paid for the sins that God had passed over. That was my understanding of the passage. And, and even not just for Old Testament saints, but for us too, to the, all the sins committed before we came to Christ, He didn't immediately judge us for those. Um, he showed grace to, to the point that we came to faith. And then Romans 4 is the very next chapter. He's talking about how Abraham was saved. He's saved by faith. It's counted to him as righteousness. Because he believed God's promise. Um, but we all experience that verse. It's not just an Old Testament verse, but it's the fact that God didn't immediately judge all of us at the moment of our first sin committed or the moment of our birth with a sinful nature. Um, he withheld his judgment for a period for us to the point that we came to Christ and then that it was transferred. Um, but even to unbelievers, he withholds his judgment for a period their earthly life until they stand before him. I thought that was a great, great look. Yeah. I like Isaiah 53 where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, which uh, to me says that Christ carried their sins in the Old Testament, our sins now, and those in the future as well. And in my, my perspective, this passage, maybe more than almost any other passage, shows the sovereignty of God. Because you know that God was looking at Abraham, giving him grace, letting him into heaven, hating the sin that Abraham had committed. If God wasn't 100% sure that he could accomplish Christ's mission thousands of years later, then he might have let Abraham into heaven and then later have said, hey, sorry, it didn't work out. There's no, there's no room for you here. Right. And so it, it shows God's sovereignty in the fact that there was no chance for a failure in Christ's mission. Right. And we can't, we can't word the question that way anymore because unpunished would imply unjust. And God's never unjust and sin's never ignored or swept under the rug. And Christ is the picture of that reality. You know, if, if God were to leave even one sin throughout all of history unpunished, just one, he would not be just. That's a, that's, a, that's a sobering thought to me. Even the smallest sin, if it goes unpunished, then God was not holy, not completely just. And in Romans 3, even the way, um, even the way Paul writes it in verse 25, um, it's one of the reasons for the cross. He says that um, God put forward as this satisfaction by his blood, his own son, and then he says, this was done so that. I mean, he's actually given us one of the purposes of the cross. And in Romans 3, he gives us several purposes for the cross. One of them, he uses language earlier in Romans 3 to redeem us, which is the idea of us being bought back from the slave market. We were slaves to sin, and he bought us back. Um, he uses the picture of justification, that we're declared not guilty. But one of the reasons for the cross was that so nobody would be able to say, God let some sins go unpunished. Uh, and so in God's forbearance and his patience, he didn't immediately punish certain sins. He's done that, as Skylar said, in our own lives. If the minute you sin on Tuesday, God doesn't absolutely bring his full wrath down on you for that sin, he, in his forbearance, chose not to punish that sin immediately, and he does that every day for lost people especially. And so God's open to the charge of not being just if he doesn't punish those sins. And he says in verse 25, one of the reasons was for the cross was so that God could not be charged with being unjust. Every single sin will be punished. Uh, when I was looking over that question, I, um, just on a very practical level, I, I thought of a good friend of mine from a previous church back in Holdenville um, whose young grandchild lived in New Mexico. And um, he got word, he was a member of our church, senior adult, that his young grandchild had been awfully abused at daycare and the man had been charged and was going to be prosecuted and was out on bail and my good friend packed a suitcase and a gun was very capable of doing this and was just going to drive to new mexico and take care of this man who had so sexually abused his grandchild and I remember um, him telling me he sat in the driveway crying before he headed to New Mexico, totally willing to go to prison for this, didn't mind at all. He just said it, it was time for this to stop. And I didn't mind spending the rest of my life in prison to make sure nobody else's grandchild. 
And he said, God absolutely broke my heart and said, do you not believe if I choose to, I can punish that man better than you can? I can and I will punish every sin the way I choose to. And, and I just remember my friend saying he had to walk back inside his house with his suitcase and his gun and trust that God could punish every sin better than he could. This, this is a passage on a much greater scale than that saying, do we have enough faith to believe that when, even when people wrong us, he, he can punish every sin if he chooses to better than we can? And that Christ proves that, that even the sin in my life that should have gone punished it did get punished in Christ, and it means that God could remain totally just. So in the Old Testament, he didn't just ignore sin, and there are times that he did bring down the judgment. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah is one of those examples. It's not that he overlooked and his forbearance kept him from punishing any sin in the Old Testament. He did at times, but he also had patience in waiting for people to repent, and when they did, their sins did get punished at the cross. So it's a picture in Romans 3 that he... The cross did accomplish redemption. We did get bought back off the slave market. It did accomplish justification, but it also protected the glory of God in that he is the punisher of every single sin. The cross proves that as well. Paul liked that thought because Brian mentioned Acts 17, but in Paul's sermon in Acts 17, the same theme comes up. He says, in previous times when people were ignorant, God graciously waited. It actually shows up in his sermon in Acts 17 as well, that God is patient with people's sins. And in chapter 14. And in chapter 14. Okay, that's all the questions we have for, for this evening. Um, don't forget, there there is the uh, Q&A um, bucket back there. You can continue putting in your questions, and this is something we're doing every quarter. Is that kind of how it's working out? But <laughs> but uh, it, definitely some very great questions. It, it kind of just reading through these makes me think that, uh, you know, people are really inquiring and wanting to know, you know, not only the discipline piece, but, you know, how to kind of deal with, with sin and as we live our Christian lives out in this, this broken and fallen world. So some great questions. So, um, Doug, would you like to dismiss us? And- sure. Let's pray. Father, if we can go back to the first question tonight and um, thank you as our Heavenly Father that you love us enough to get our attention and correct us and grow us and discipline us. We agree with the writer of Hebrews that no discipline seems seems pleasant at the time, but it does work a righteousness in us. So I thank you that your work in us didn't stop at the cross just with salvation but that you're growing us and making us more like Christ. Your commitment to us is eternal. As Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. So we stop tonight and thank you for that. We, we pray that we've tried to answer these questions, really good ones, um, honestly and biblically. I love sitting here with these other three men and just seeing them go to the Bible over and over for their answers. I pray you'd always keep all of us doing that when hard questions in life come up, that your word would be the first place we run, both individually and as a church. So we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for your discipline tonight. And we thank you for the cross and that you can be both just and the one who can justify. You can forgive us without violating your holiness. And Jesus, we thank you 
that you're the one that made that possible. Your death on the cross, let us be forgiven and God remain holy. Um, That is the miracle. The greatest miracle in the world is what happened on the cross. And tonight we thank you for that. And it's in your name, Christ, we pray. Amen.